Be seated. Here, Mike, if you want to follow along. Brothers and sisters, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28 just briefly. I want to have occasion to read the text of Scripture that records for us our Lord's resurrection on this day. I will read Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. This glorious, accurate, historical, and inspired account of our Lord Jesus Christ rising again. Hear now God's word, Matthew 28, the first ten verses. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let us pray. Father, I can preach this morning because Jesus is risen from the dead. I pray this in his name. Amen. About four years ago, I preached in seed form the sermon I'm about to preach to you now. Now, I know I can do this because, first of all, if it's worth, worth, worth preaching once, it's worth preaching a hundred times, number one. Number two, there was only a hundred of you here then, 50 of which of those hundred people, uh, only 50 of you are still actually here. And then of, of those 50, only 25 were probably really listening the first time. And then of those 25... I've changed it quite a bit, so you'll want to hear the new rendition. Today I want to pursue, on the greatest day in the church calendar anyways, the day we humanly designate to remember specifically the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection, I want to explore the scriptures in our time together, asking the simple question, what is the greatest statement the living God has ever made? Now, he's done great things. I'm not so much talking about the great miracles or the great happenings or occurrences. There are many. But specifically, from God the Father or God the Son's mouth, what is the greatest statement the great God, the living God, has made in the biblical text? Let's study that together because it's an important question. Of all the great things he said, and they're all great, every word of Scripture, but what specifically, what statement that the living God has made, what we say is the greatest? I think some would have to point to Genesis 1 in the third verse. For there... Seems obvious enough. It all starts. God speaks the world into existence by saying, first, let there be light. And heaven's lights come on when he says it. No need for a sun, no need for solar power. Just his presence and his words, let there be light. And light is there. Then he takes time. Object after object, created thing after created thing, he speaks them into existence. And for all the squabbling Uh, unbelieving scientists do, it still comes down to God's creation by divine fiat. He speaks it, and it's there. Let there be light. 
Certainly, some would conclude that this is the greatest statement ever spoken. They're the first words spoken, at least in time and space, of the living God. It was a great statement for sure. It's a statement that is to be held forth, be held forth for the ages. But there's a better one still to come. So let's search further. Just 23 verses after he speaks the world into existence, the 26th verse of the first chapter of Genesis, we have a most remarkable statement by the living God. Amazing when you think about it. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them take dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Surely there could be no greater statement from the living God than a statement that shows that we bear the image of God as people, as human beings. Sure, there are many wonderful things in creation, but they don't bear the image of God. An elephant is huge, huge, as big as a house, as they might say. It could stomp on us with one step. It's not created in the image of God. The horse, talk about majestic, muscular, fast, even royal. Still not created in the image of God. The lion. It's powerful of all animals. Could grip us and rip us with just one grip in its jaw. King of the jungle, they say. Small K, king over the savannah. But it's not created in the image of God. Only man. Let us make man in our image. Somehow, and I can't exactly explain it, you have the image of God. You bear the image of God. All of us, sinners though we be, bear the image of God. Certainly some would argue that the greatest statement by the living God is, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And it is a mighty profound statement for sure, but it is not the greatest. Let us continue to press further. Just a couple chapters later in Genesis Genesis 3, verse 15. One would say, one could argue well, that there could not be a greater statement than the first clear statement of the gospel message. How could one argue with what it says in Genesis 3.15, especially in light of what happens? Man is created, and sin enters as man chooses to disobey God, and sends man into a tailspin, and what would have been your response to this? Well, this is what God's response was to the fall of man. Immediately after his prized creation falls, those created in his own image... They fall and follow Satan. Listen to what God says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first audible mention of the gospel message that he will send a savior to undo the work of the devil in the garden. To crush the head of Satan. To restore things. Not a word of judgment first. The word of judgment is on Satan. That's his response. The gospel is born. We see it there in time and space now. The plan of God from eternity to save a people for himself. And there we have the greatest statement, some would say, with good reason, the greatest statement from the living God is the gospel is revealed in Genesis 3, verse 15. And it's a glorious promise contained in Genesis 3, for sure. The words are awesome, but it's not the greatest statement that the living God has ever made. We must search further. In the same book, this wonderful foundational book called Genesis, Beginnings, we have yet another statement that has to at least be a candidate 
for the greatest statement of the living God. For it happens in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. Many great statements God has made for sure already in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. But now we come to chapter 12, where we see how Genesis 3.15 will begin to be fulfilled. God comes to a little old pagan man and his barren wife, very unlikely candidates. In fact, this starts a pattern of God to take the most unlikely candidates to play out his promises. He says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Note the greatness of our God, that he chooses a feeble old man and his barren wife to fulfill his promise of redemption. Because we know what happens to Abraham's seed, we realize that he does bring forth the Savior. He does fulfill this amazing promise that his descendants will be as many as there are grains of sand on the beach and stars in the sea. That's an incredible promise. Certainly one would have to say it's the greatest statement God ever made. Think of how unlikely it is. We call it the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promise. Coming into time and space, again, God, the gospel. A marvelous, powerful statement for sure, but God has better yet to come. In fact, we roll ahead several hundred years. Abraham has a son. He has a son. He has a son. Two million people later, a few hundred years later, they find themselves in slavery in Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, under the most powerful man in the world at that time named Pharaoh. And here they are, the progeny of Abraham, reaching some two million people, and God, in the midst of their slavery, raises up one called Moses, the most unlikely candidate. He was intemperate, he was impatient, he could barely even talk, and God said, I'm going to make you to bring my people out. In fact, how God speaks makes that statement all the greater. You remember how it is, where the greatest statement God ever made comes? From the burning bush that burns and it doesn't even get consumed. Listen to what he says to stuttering, stammering Moses. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land of the land of good, and bring them to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, he says to Moses, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. How on earth was God going to use stuttering and stammering Moses to free two million people from the most powerful Leader in the world, God speaks in a great way to poor old Moses. And the process sets forth more clearly the way he's going to fulfill Genesis 3.15. Certainly they had thought God forgot them after a couple hundred years in slavery. But now, back on the scene, God reveals with this great statement to Moses that I will free my people. Certainly, one would say, or at least put this up there, is one of the great statements God has ever made. And it is a great statement that God makes to Moses from that burning bush. How awesome it is how he chose to even reveal himself. But as you would suspect, there are greater statements still to come. We must push further. Later in that same book, Exodus 12, 
Several years go by, and God clearly raises Moses to a most powerful state in both Israel and Egypt. He is sent before Pharaoh. Remember, the one who was afraid to even look at God is now sent before the most powerful ruler in the world at that time. And God speaks forth through him what he will say to Pharaoh. And listen to what God says to Pharaoh. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Hardly a greater statement could be made than I am the Lord. Now, he could have said, I am a great God. Pharaoh would have agreed, but he doesn't say that. He says, I am the Lord. That means there is no other God. Your gods are false and fake. In fact, I'll send you bloody rivers. I will send lice to sleep in the beds of your people and the bed, your bed itself, Pharaoh. You will sleep with lice. I will send locusts. I will show you over and over again, I am the Lord. How can one say? This is not the greatest statement. And God does just what he says. And it climaxes with the sending of the angel, the spirit of death that hovers over. And all who are not covered by the blood, the blood of that unblemished lamb, they would be killed, their firstborn, both men and animals. But if you would cover yourself with the blood, you'd be saved. Again, this picture of Genesis 3.15 working itself out in time and space and in the witness of the nations, certainly one would have to say, I am God, the only God. Certainly one would have to say that is the greatest statement God has ever made. And certainly, undoubtedly, it is a great statement for God to make. No one would disagree, but it is not the greatest ever. We must search further. Moses, being a man, sins. He is not allowed to enter the promised land. And now we come to Joshua, who is a military general. He worked in the Central Intelligence Agency of Israel before this, and then he became a general. God does not stop his display with his statement to Pharaoh. No, he continues. He does not stop for leaders. He picks Joshua, and he says to Joshua what some would have to say in light of what happens are the greatest words God ever spoke. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Most people were depressed. Now, therefore, arise, go to this Jordan, he says to Joshua. You and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the land of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, in all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you in all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, nor will I forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, says the Lord God? Be strong and courageous. Be not frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Certainly there could be no greater statement than that which assures military victory after military victory. Now I know many generals think that God's fighting for them. But only one actually had God tell them I'm fighting for them. That's a great statement. I will take nations that could wipe you out normally. And I will clear them out for you. So that everywhere you put your sandal, that's yours. 
That's yours. As far as you can see where the sun goes down, that's yours. I will fulfill the promise that I promised to your forefathers that ultimately is embodied in this promise to send a Savior to crush the head of the serpent. Certainly, this is a great statement made to Joshua in a serious time of transition. It is a grand statement, a marvelous statement, but not the greatest statement yet. Israel does as people do. They sin, and they sin all the more. Despite their sin, God had committed himself in Genesis 3.15 to send a Savior, to bring forth a Redeemer. As the people cry out for a king, God gives them what they ask for, and he falls on his face because they judge the way men judge. And they decided the big, strong, good-looking Saul would be a good leader, and he fell on his face. That's man's wisdom. And so the greatest statement God ever made may be the one he says in response to Saul's falling and then in preparation for the calling of a new king. Listen to the great statement of God. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And you have to admit that is revolutionary. Now, we all say that because we know it's the spiritual thing to say. But when's the last time you didn't judge someone for the way they looked? Or how much they had? Or how smart they were? That's, a, that's something only God can do. And that's a great statement for him to say in the midst of his redemptive plan unfolding that man's wisdom will not apply here. You judge because you think he's strong and great. I judge based on the heart. And I'm going to take a skinny little shepherd boy and make him the greatest king you've ever seen. And he does. Despite the fact that Solomon, of course, had a richer kingdom, it was never spiritually more strong than David's early years. Wow, the wisdom of God, how different that is and how we make our judgments. Certainly one would have to say, that that is God's greatest statement in the face of human wisdom, that he would tell us not to look on his appearance. For the Lord sees not as a man. Man looks on the outward, but the Lord looks on the heart. What a great statement that reveals much about the living God's activities. But it's still not the greatest statement yet. For the days of the prophets were coming. The kingdom was split. Both sides languished to maintain their identities. It was no doubt difficult to remember God's promises of Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 12 to send one to crush Satan, for they were in effect serving Satan themselves. It would be tough, given their weakened status and their lack of unity, to look upon these promises of God and be strengthened by them. So God sends a prophet named Isaiah, who ministers at the end of the fall of the north and into the beginning of the birth pangs of falling for the south, And he speaks forth a prophecy that brings them right back to Genesis 3.15 all those years later. And mind you, this prophecy happens 700 years before Jesus actually comes. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet says. God says through Isaiah the prophet, certainly this has to be the greatest statement. In the midst of the sin of his people, he says, Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like him, like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we would look upon him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one with whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What a vivid picture of the living God to a depressed people, a sinning people, a people who are under the shadow of judgment. And he reminds them of his divine commitment, his covenant to save them, to send one to crush the head of the serpent. Certainly in the midst of this depression, in the midst of this disobedience, this has to be the greatest statement of the living God, to tell them exactly what Messiah, Christ, the anointed one, would come and do as the suffering Lamb of God for their sins. 700 years before he would actually come. Certainly, this is a great statement. No question. But God speaks more. He still speaks. God remained silent for 400 years prophetically. The prophetic voice was silent from the time of Malachi until God sent his messenger, an angel, to announce that the seed of the woman had come. Christ had come. Speaking to a lowly, carpenter named Joseph. Some would have to say that the annunciation of Christ's birth, the coming of the promise of Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 12, and virtually the whole Old Testament, certainly that annunciation is the greatest statement. For it says in Matthew 1.20 and 21, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, or Yeshua, or God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. At last, finally, after thousands of years, great promise after great promise, great statement after great statement, great act after great act, God re-enters time and space in Revelation and pronounces the fact that his son had come. Certainly, this is the most glorious news ever. Certainly, this is the greatest statement God had ever made. The seed of the woman had come forth. The fulfiller of Abraham's promise was here. The suffering lamb of Isaiah's dreams was now on the scene. Certainly, the annunciation of Christ's birth has to be God's greatest statement. But it's not. We search further. Who could argue, who here would really argue, publicly anyways, that the 16th verse of the third chapter of John is not the greatest statement God has ever made. Many contend that this is the great verse of the Bible. Glorious and great statements for sure, but hear the words of Jesus as he speaks to Nicodemus, who, like us, often only approach him at night. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Who could possibly argue that this is not God's greatest statement? Everybody knows this verse. You see it at football games, basketball games, and baseball games. And by the way, that's the only thing good happening in those arenas right now. John 3.16. Whosoever believes in Christ, it says, will not reap the just deserts of their sin, but will rather experience eternal life. The greatest of all messages for sure. Who could say what Jesus said to Nicodemus in the simple 16th verse of the third chapter of John is not the greatest statement God ever made. And the personal message of promised salvation is awesome for sure. But what gives credence to Christ's words at this point? Speaking big words, eternal life. Why can we believe him? It's a great statement, but it needs something to back it up. So I would submit to you that there are greater statements still. In fact, not too long after, just eight chapters later, 
there is probably what many consider the greatest statement God ever made. John 11. Jesus returns four days after his good friend Lazarus dies. By now, surely Lazarus' body is beginning to decay. But God the Son, undaunted by the reality of biology, comes back just according to the divine plan, and he stands and asks the people to roll away the stone. And undaunted by the smell and stench of rotting flesh, he stands and says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus has no choice but to get up and come forth. Because he's the Lord over death. Now we're talking. Now we're getting there. That's got to be close. That's got to be close. Come forth, and he comes forth. Just the same way you were saved. You didn't say, God, come forth to me. He said, come forth, and you could. No, no choice. The chains fell off, and you came. We're getting close. It's warm. He's a Lord over death. How can we possibly make a greater statement? But he does. Certainly raising a dead man is miraculous. It is no doubt great. But it is greater. Is it greater? Is it possibly greater than going to the cross for us sinners? I said the cross for us sinners. Can I have an amen? That's the cross for us sinners. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. There we have what some would say are the greatest words God has ever spoken. There he is on the cross. Nails ripped through the flesh of his wrists and his feet, his hands, blood pouring out of his ripped up back, his pierced side. No doubt birds of prey circling our Savior as he stayed nailed against that rough wood. An excruciating pain, unthinkable pain, nothing we can even imagine. The crown of thorns digging into his head, down into his scalp, with blood in his eyes and the scorn of the crowd in his ears. Jesus Christ does not do what I would have done. I would have killed them all. He said, Father, forgive them, for I know not what I do. They know not what they do. Could there be greater words? Because we couldn't utter those words. Say you will, but you wouldn't. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just like God in the garden, speaking the words of Genesis 3.15 in the face of man's cosmic treason, now being killed, the Creator being killed by the creation, he says, Father, forgive them. Certainly we must conclude that this is the greatest statement God ever made. But I think not. Great, yes, glorious, most definitely, but not the greatest yet. For just shortly thereafter, before he gives up the ghost, after uttering such a remarkable word of forgiveness, one that is totally hard for me to, impossible for me to relate with, now something even more weighty and profound is uttered. He wraps up all the history of revelation, all the history of redemption into one statement as he cries out before he gives up the ghost, it is finished. What is finished? That promise of God to send a seed from the woman to crush the head of the serpent. It's finished. The cross was the bruising of the Savior. It was a crushing of Satan. Sin, death, and hell no more. It's finished. The promise of Isaiah to send a suffering servant who would bear our sins and iniquities. Healed by his stripes we are. It's finished. It's done. All those hundreds of prophecies that predicted the coming of our Lord. God's anointed one, the Messiah. The Christ. All of them fulfilled in Christ on the cross. It is finished, he says. Redemption had been paid for those to whom the Father had given the Son. Certainly, we would have to say that God's greatest statement were those epic words on the cross, 
it is finished. Still, and it's even hard for me to say this, there are greater words yet uttered. I've cited to this point 14 of God's greatest statements, and I assure you if I preach this in four years from now, you'll have a 21-point sermon on your hands. Yet I say that we have not heard the greatest statement yet. How can I say such a thing? I contend to you this morning something very important, that the best statement in the Bible is still to come. In order to identify God's greatest statement, please hear the words of the Apostle Paul, for they give us the key to this question. Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Listen to what he says closely. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That gives us a clue as to what the greatest statement ever was. Paul declares to the Holy Spirit that without Christ rising again from the dead, none of the statements God ever made that I just recited mean anything because they're not reliable. Without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it would not matter that God spoke the world into existence, supposedly, or that he made man in God's image, or promised a redeemer, or raised up a guy like Moses to free his people, or taught Pharaoh, who who the supposed real God was or anointed David to be king, or moved Isaiah to predict this suffering one. If he stays in the grave, it doesn't matter. Had an angel announced the birth of Redeemer, so what if he is not raised again? So what if he promises to save people but cannot save himself from death? We have had many, many who have promised such things. Where are they? They're dead. Their tracks leave into the, lead into the grave and they don't appear on the other side. So the greatest statement has to be a statement that appears on the other side of the grave. Those are great things that he says before the grave, but if the grave ends him, then what good is it? What we need is a statement on the other side of the grave because no one else has been able to give it. For all Confucius says, he's dead. For all Mohammed says, he's dead. These people have not come back. They have not been able to give us the key to heaven. But the Lord Jesus, and I will give you the great statement of the Bible that I think is the great statement, the greatest statement God ever made. Three days after Jesus hung on a cross dead and was put in the sealed tomb, he appeared to two frightened women a short distance from where he once laid. Matthew 28, 9, in my opinion, is the greatest statement God ever made. It says, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Greetings, that's it? You took me through all that to say greetings, is it? Don't you see? First of all, the word there is kairo, which really means joy. It means rejoice. It means health, spiritual health. The first thing the Lord Jesus Christ says on the other side of the grave is that thing which is the greatest statement. You can have joy. You can have health because I'm alive. I'm alive. Greetings. The first words on the other side of the grave are the most powerful, the greatest statement he ever made. That makes all the other statements that great because now they're authenticated. Now we can believe what he says is true. Greetings, he says to us. This simple first statement of God on the other side of the grave proves the authenticity of all that had ever gone before it. It's why I get up here every week and preach. It's why you read your scriptures. It's why you believe in the promises of God to your family because he rose again. If he's still dead, none of it means anything. But he has risen. What is our response? What is our response? He says greetings to the women on the road. He says greetings to you today. He is risen. He is alive. Let our response be exactly the same as the two women. 
and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we can speak, we can fellowship, we can live because you live. I pray, O God, that you would turn your church to a church that proclaims this message loud and clear by the renewed and transformed lives they live, that the world would look and see that we are the only ones who have a risen Savior. And I pray that they would look and live and that you would transform this world for yourself and start with your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond together by singing his glorious hymn, 286, as the elders prepare the table. 286, verse 1 and verse 2. Worship.